So welcome back to Jew I Don't Know, Unsolved Jewish Mysteries, Season 3, Episode 2, Episode number 60 for the entire Jew I Don't Know podcast, which is kind of cool. So let me reach into my grab bag here and pull out a bunch of seemingly random stuff, and let's see if we can make a story out of it. Okay, so Vladimir Putin, um, Angelina Jolie's dad, the famous actor John Voigt. Uh, Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn, the United States Congress, Yiddish, federal judges, books from 400 years ago. Oh, and of course, Nazis. Always got to have the Nazis in there. Let's see what we've got. And sure enough, we've got something. Today's unsolved Jewish mystery, the Schneerson Collection. Now, it's not exactly unsolved in the sense of the Schneerson collection having gone missing. We know where the collection is and who has it. You can even sort of access it online. But they, and by they I mean Russia, they're not giving it back. There's lawsuits and diplomatic exchanges and congressional hearings and Jewish spiritual traditions and major famous rabbis all wrapped up in this. That's today's episode of Unsolved Jewish Mysteries here at Jew I Don't Know. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Okay, so back in the 1700s, there was a tiny, tiny little town located in what was then the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but which became part of the Russian Empire by the end of the century. Think of the village from Fiddler on the Roof, and you've pretty much got it. It was a mostly Jewish village, what's called a shtetl, and at various times in its history, it had between one and 2,000 Jews there. Not much changed over the centuries, typical of the impoverished shtetls located in this part of Russia. And so it was, in every way, unremarkable. And other than a brief visit by Napoleon's troops in 1815, it might have passed through Jewish history totally unremembered. Except for one thing. For a hundred years, there lived in the town a Jewish family named Schneerson, and whose patriarchs are the rabbis of a Hasidic Jewish movement named for and headquartered in this tiny little village, which was called Lubavitch, or as we know in the movement today, Chabad. You may have heard of Chabad. The Lubavitch movement, or Chabad, was founded in 1775 and was led by a succession of seven rabbis, each one the son or son-in-law of the previous rabbi, all the way up until the 1990s. It is the fastest growing Jewish religious movement in the world today and has had enormous influence on global Jewry. What came out of Tani Lubavitch is now a movement spread all over the world. If you find yourself in Ghana or Paraguay or Cambodia or New Zealand or anywhere in Europe or North America and you need a place to stay for Shabbat or a meal, you will find there a Chabad house to look after your Jewish needs. It's said that the first space shuttle flight to Mars will have someone from the Lubavitcher movement to set up a Chabad house for the Jewish astronauts. So in Lubavitch, you had these Chabad rabbis leading the movement and over the centuries they wrote and gathered tons of material. Books, manuscripts, letters, thoughts on Jewish mysticism and philosophy and law and practice. These rabbis were so revered that their words were considered almost sacred and everything they wrote was saved. It was with the fifth leader of the movement, 
Rabbi Shalom Dovber Schneerson, that our unsolved Jewish mystery begins. Rabbi Dovber was something of a tragic figure. Born in Lubavitch in 1860, he was sexually molested throughout his childhood by someone close to the family, and as an adult was treated by none other than Sigmund Freud. At the age of 22, his father died, but Dovber was a bit too young to take on the leadership of Chabad, so his duties were split between him and his older brother. If you listen to my series on the history of Zionism, then you might remember all the way back at the beginning, in episode number 22, about the harsh laws passed against the Jews following the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in 1881. Rabbi Dovber's steady leadership throughout that difficult time eventually cemented his role as a top guy for Chabad, and starting in the 1880s, he took up the job. He was opposed to Zionism, but supported the creation of Jewish agricultural settlements and academic learning in Palestine. One influential rabbi said of him that his words were so holy that to disagree with him would be to disagree with Moses. I mean, I don't want to be the one to point out that, like, we actually did disagree a lot with Moses in the desert, and sometimes it didn't go well for us, but other times, actually, we were, it was quite reasonable, and we got something good out of it, but let's stick with our story. So in 1915, World War I and the Germans came too close for comfort to Lubavitch, so Rabbi Dovber moved Chabad to the Russian city of Rostov, near the Black Sea. But the library he sent to Moscow for safekeeping, this massive collection of thousands of books, manuscripts, letters, and other works going back, in some cases, several hundred years. He figured that when the war ended, he would just go get it all back. But in 1920, he died before making that happen. The problem was that the Russian Civil War was raging between the communist Bolsheviks and the anti-communist White Army. And the Bolsheviks, who were not huge fans of the Jews, well, they won. So when Rabbi Dovber's son, Rabbi Yitzhak Schneerson, the new and now sixth leader of the Lubavitcher movement, when he finally got around to trying to get the collection back, he discovered that the communists had taken over the storage facility where the works were held, turned them all over to the Russian State Library, and refused to give them back. Not only that, but because Rabbi Yitzhak had spoken out against both communism and the communists' anti-Jewish agenda, they threw him in prison and sentenced him to death. Under outside pressure, they commuted the sentence and let him leave Russia, and eventually he made his way to Warsaw in the 1930s. At this point, he was one of the most prominent Jews in the world, a major religious figure. And when Germany invaded Poland at the start of World War II, there was an international effort to get him out. It's a fascinating story and one for a whole other podcast, but in 1940, he came to the United States, settled in Brooklyn, started up the Lubavitcher movement there, and that, my friends, is why today there are so many Hasidic Jews in New York, because that's where Rabbi Yitzhak established Chabad's new headquarters. Now, Rabbi Dovber had kept only about 100 volumes from the massive collection he hid away in Moscow, and these volumes stayed with Rabbi Yitzhak throughout his life. When he set up shop in Brooklyn, he put the works on a special shelf inside the headquarters, and there they are today. But the rest of the collection, tens of thousands of items, remained in Russia, including a whole other section that the Nazis seized and which the Soviets had found after the war. So then a couple things happened. In 2004, Chabad sued Russia. And then the United States took up the case. 
The Schneerson collection became tied up in Russian-American diplomacy at the highest levels of government, which if you've been awake at all in the last 10 years or so, not really great relationship happening there. And the Schneerson collection is part of it. So the unsolved mystery is, who should get the Schneerson collection? Chabad in the United States or Russia? I mean, it seems pretty clear, right? Chabad and the United States demand the return of the collection, but Russia argues that the Schneerson collection at this point is part of its national heritage, and to remove it from Russian soil would therefore be illegal. Now, Russia has a law that requires the government to return religious property acquired by the Bolsheviks back over to that religion's institutions, Though if those institutions don't have the resources or ability to properly care for those items, the government can hang on to them on that religion's behalf. So back in April of 2005, the United States Congress took up the case. In a public hearing of the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe, which was titled the Schneerson Collection and Historical Justice, the committee heard testimony from a number of senior American Chabad rabbis, as well as the State Department's Special Envoy for Holocaust Issues. Now, if you're Chabad, a bunch of middle-aged to elderly rabbis dressed all in black and coming to Congress to testify in what seems like an obscure matter, you'd want to figure out a way to get a little attention, a little publicity, right? Like, bring along a celebrity, someone with a little star power to promote your cause. And who did Chabad bring? The famous Hollywood actor John Voight. For my millennial listeners, that's Angelina Jolie's dad. Why John Voight? Well, perhaps that is the real unsolved mystery for today's episode because I have no idea. I don't have a clue how he got wrapped up with Chabad and Russia and the Schneerson collection. And if you're asking yourself, well, then how do I know all this in the first place? It's because I was at the hearing. The congressman I was working for at the time was one of the chairman of the hearing, along with then-Senator Sam Brownback of Kansas. Then he went on to become governor. So I sat there just behind my boss on the C-SPAN cameras. Probably you can find it online. Side note, after the hearing, John Voigt came over, hugged me, and told me that I was doing an excellent job, which was very nice. He then took pictures with the Chabad guys and Senator Brownback, and one of those pictures ended up in a profile story that Rolling Stone magazine did on Brownback about a year later. And if you look at the photo, there, on the right side, you will see, well, not so much me as my left arm in an olive green suit. I'm going to be posting that picture up on the website, so take a look as soon as you hear this episode. And if you've been thinking, wow, Jason knows so much about Jewish history, but he must be totally uncool, just remember that my picture, sort of, has been in Rolling Stone magazine. And that is how I played my little part in today's Unsolved Jewish Mystery. So, as I say, you'll find that picture and more information up on the website, jewoutdunno.com. Back to the story. Now, the other part of the unsolved mystery here is that we're not entirely sure what all the Russians have. The Schneerson collection consists of two parts. A library, which is estimated at around 12,000 books, religious texts that the Lubavitchers have been collecting for a very long time. We know there is a text from Venice that dates to 1552, a Torah from 1631, and an illustrated Haggadah from Amsterdam that was made in 1712. 
And the second part of the collection is an archive, basically anything not a book, mostly handwritten, a lot of personal letters and manuscript thoughts from various rabbis and Lubavitcher leaders, and estimated at around 25,000 items. To add a further layer of complexity, it's the library of books that the rabbi Dove Bear had put in Moscow for safekeeping, and which Chabad has been trying to get back ever since. The archive, those 25,000 non-books, the archive had been stolen by the Nazis in Warsaw and made its way to Russia after the war when the Soviets took it. Chabad thought it was lost until it surfaced in Russia in the early 2000s. So you can understand why Chabad, which holds sacred the words and works of its rabbis, they want this all back. There could be profound works of Jewish religious thought, theology, and philosophy in there, ideas associated with some of Judaism's most distinguished rabbis over the last few centuries. This is really important stuff, and for sure there are insights in there to be discovered. So for the last 20 years or so, the Schneerson Collection has been on the diplomatic agenda and at the highest level. All 100 U.S. senators back in 2005 signed a letter to Vladimir Putin requesting the return of the collection. That letter was given to President George W. Bush, who then himself gave it to Putin when the two leaders met in Slovakia. And since then, just as relations between the U.S. and Russia have gotten more contentious, so has the fighting over the Schneerson collection. There are even, to use a loaded term, hostages. In 1994, Russia loaned the Library of Congress seven books from the Schneerson Collection as part of a cultural heritage exchange. When the library was done with the exhibition, it gave them to Chabad. Chabad, of course, refused to give them back. And the US government said, hey, we gave them to Chabad, it's not our problem anymore. So Russia was pretty pissed about that. Fast forward to 2011. A federal judge in the United States ruled that the collection had to be returned to Chabad in the United States. Russia refused to recognize the ruling and declared that they would no longer lend artwork of any kind to any museum in the United States, lest those pesky Chabad lawyers hostage that stuff too. The United States got equally huffy, declared that it would no longer allow artwork to be lent to Russia either, so that dragged basically the entire art world into the fight. Two years went by. And another judge, the Chief Justice of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, ruled that Russia should be fined $50,000 for every day that they failed to return the collection. That was nearly six years ago, so that's a lot of money. But realizing that two can play at this game, a Russian court ordered the return of those seven books from Chabad and decided that every day that those weren't returned would be a fine of, you guessed it, $50,000. And all this time, the Schneerson Collection was still high up on the diplomatic agenda between the United States and Russia, along with, you know, invading Crimea and cyber attacks and Syria and, you know, putting the current president on the throne. I, I just I had to say it. You know I had to say it. But then something interesting happened. And tell me if this changes your mind a little bit. Russia built a multi-million dollar Jewish Museum and Tolerance Center in Moscow. And Vladimir Putin offered something of a compromise solution. He said that the Russian State Library would loan the collection to the Jewish Museum and would scan the library of books and put them online for anyone to access. Interesting, right? Well, Chabad in the United States said no. 
Nothing short of the physical return of the entire collection to its rightful owner, they said, would suffice. But then here's another twist for you. Both Chabad in Russia, because there is a Chabad in Russia, both Chabad in Russia and the leadership of the Russian Jewish community say that the collection should stay in Russia. And Chabad in Russia runs the Jewish Museum and Tolerance Center. They say that the Schneerson collection is just as much a part of their heritage as it is Chabad's in the United States. And anyway, they said it's a pretty good compromise, and the first time a Russian leader has been willing to give some ground. To refuse, says Chabad in Russia, makes the Jewish community there look bad, and encourages Russia to dig in its heels even further. By the way, I looked up the Schneerson collection online. I can't really tell you one way or the other since everything listed was in either Russian or Yiddish, neither of which I speak. But there does seem to be a database of some kind, though I wasn't able to penetrate too far into it to find anything specific. So for the past several years, there hasn't been much movement. In 2017, a single book from the Schneerson collection was found in Israel and returned to Chabad in Brooklyn. Senator Chuck Schumer of New York issued a press release then over how excited he was and vowed not to rest until the entire collection was returned. But I think between 2017 and now, I mean, I'm sure he's rested a little bit here and there. Russia has tried to change tactics, arguing that its dispute is not with the United States government, but between the Russian government and a Jewish organization registered in the United States. The U.S. government, for its part, tried to argue before the district court that imposing that $50,000 fine would worsen diplomatic relations and make it harder to resolve the dispute, but the judge ruled anyway. So whatever day you are listening to this podcast, the Russians and the Americans have fined each other $50,000 for failing to return Schneerson's books. I just came across this guy, Barry Weber, singing this. It's what's called a nigun, a kind of wordless chant popular in Hasidic music. Another plug for the Jew I don't know website, you can find a link to the YouTube video of this song and all the other ones I played in this episode. Just go to the website and on the right towards the top you'll see a link to this week's episode. Click on that and it will take you to a page with a bunch more content. JewIdon'tKnow.com Anyway, that was a really interesting story, at least I think so, about the Schneerson collection and it is not the only Jewish collection out there in an ownership dispute. I'll be talking about another one in a few weeks. But for next week, an unsolved mystery of a different kind. This one perhaps more metaphysical than physical. Long, long before Mary Shelley invented Frankenstein, the Jews had their own version. You don't hear too much about it these days. The last time it was a thing was back in World War II. So I wonder where it went. It's a violent, protective, obedient. It's an anthropomorphic being made out of clay called the golem. That's next time. Lahitra out. See you later. <laughs>